how does one become something? How do you become something? How do you become rich? How do you become poor? How do you become successful? Or how do you become powerful? Or how do you become kind-hearted? Or how do you, you know, I, I don't know, become a jerk? Like, how do you become these things? Now, I thought for kicks and giggles, I typed the words, how does one become, in the Google search bar, an old mama. The results that appeared in front of me were insanely random at best. I thought I would share with you just a few of them from top to bottom. These are all the ones that appeared to me. I thought they were amazing. Uh, The first one is, how does one become a federal judge? The reason I like that one is because apparently... There's a bunch of young whippersnappers out there who are curious about their future and future federal judging. Like, they're just like, I don't know. How do we do this? Um, and then the results took a more interesting turn. Somebody wrote, how do I become a saint? How does one become, and this one, how does one become a sociopath? But again, I'm not sure there's a class or course for that. And then how does one become a butterfly? <laughs> Which... Let's be honest, we've all asked that. And then a full circle, how does one become a Supreme Court judge? So these were all the results that appeared in front of me. But essentially, how do we become what it is that we are? I'm assuming it's as simple as life's turns and twists and life's challenges and choices, success and failure. But what about the other end of becoming? How does one become a thief? How does one become a liar? How does one become a bad friend, even to the point of betrayal? See, after reading our verses for tonight, I'm assuming that everybody here, for the most part, knows where I'm going with this. See, I haven't mentioned his name yet, but if we talk about thievery and we talk about betrayal in the Bible, our mind immediately goes to one man, and that's Judas Iscariot. See, whether Christian or not, whether you read the Bible on the reg or never touched the Bible before, you've heard the name Judas Iscariot. See, it's a name that's associated with evil. It's a name associated with something wicked. It's a name associated with deceit and obviously him being a traitor. And it's here tonight, if we take the time to stop and look at the life of Judas, we hopefully find more than just some sort of talk, but a divine message for us all. Because I believe the truth, this very truth that we're going to learn tonight, speaks to all of us, both believer and unbeliever alike. Because there are gallons and gallons uh, of lessons to be learned from Judas's life. And I encourage all of us that we should know them intensely. And the cautionary count, we should know the cautionary count of Judas. We should remember and contemplate often the catastrophe that was his life. So because of that, I'd like to do a case study of sorts tonight that led up to what we just read. Because we all get from our verses, we just read it right now, what we just showed up in was the ending. What we have, we walked into the end of his life. Essentially for us tonight, it's like the film Fight Club where the opening scene is a bloodied and battered Edward Norton. What we do, what it leaves the viewer doing, the reader, the audience is to ask the question, what, what, what is happening? What is going on? What has taken place to get to the, where, the point where Judas's bowels come flopping out of his body? Why such a tragic ending? 
Why did Judas need to be replaced? Essentially to answer my intro question for Judas that how does one become something? How does one become something wicked? So here's how I'd like to set us up for tonight. We're going to learn lessons from his life and lessons from his death and lessons from his replacement. But we won't be able to understand his replacement and death until we witness the subtle decay of his life. I want us to be like firefighters tonight, rummaging through the charcoal and ashes to find out the source. So, what do we know of Judas? What do you know of Judas? What does the Bible tell us about Judas? The Bible explains that Judas was a man called by Jesus himself to be a disciple. See, and asked Judas, uh, he asked Judas, Judas to follow him as a pupil would follow a rabbi. But get this, back in the day... No, no, they approached rabbis. Hey, can I follow you? I'm going to petition you, rabbi. Can I follow you? And Jesus turns that and spins that. And Jesus is different. And he approaches them and says, you be with me. Jesus approaches them as the rabbi and says, you be with me. Do life with me. So Judas denied his former life for the chance to follow Christ. It was on his own volition and his own choice and his own doing. Jesus had invited Judas into the inner circle. Out of all the people that followed Jesus then, he was chosen to be one of the infamous Motley Crew 12, to eat with Jesus, to do ministry with Jesus, to serve with Jesus, to pray with Jesus. Judas, with the other 11, had the single greatest advantage over any other person in the history of mankind, as they experienced firsthand not only what we read in the Bible— miracles and, and, and ceasing storms and death to life and the greatest preached sermons ever. But Judas also had what wasn't recorded, you know, laughs over breakfast and high fives and deep convos on road trips. Basically, they were friends. They were friends. Jesus and Judas were friends. The disciples and Judas were friends. Even as we peek at the Judas, as Judas's betrayal, the peak of it, um, you see as Judas kissed his face, which was a symbol of friendship. Jesus said to him in that moment, friend. Jesus said to him in that moment, as Judas kissed his face to betray him, he said, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Judas as well was given a job. Most people know this as well. This is pretty famous. He was given a job. He had a known and important responsibility. See, the gospel of John chapter 13 shows us that Judas held the money back. So Judas was the finance guy. He was the bookkeeper. He was the treasurer. A position for the most trusted of men. So then, after all of that, I don't get it. After all that, how do we get from that to what we read in Acts 1? What are we missing? Where is the part in the Bible where he drinks the black potion and he turns into the monster? Or where is the part of the Bible where we find Jesus and his constant micromanagement and he pushed Judas too far? (laughs) Simply, how does one go from 24-7 discipleship with Jesus Christ to becoming inside out? How did Jesus become something wicked? I believe so much of it comes down to the question, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why did Judas 
decide to follow Jesus? Why does anyone decide to follow Jesus? Christians, have you ever contemplated that question? If you were approached at the next coffee bean we visited, or you visited, and somebody grabbed your arm and they said, Why do you follow him? Why are you a Christian? Do you know how you would answer? I was thinking because so many of those who choose why they don't follow Jesus have their answers locked and loaded. They know exactly why they don't follow Jesus. Perhaps there's some here tonight who know exactly why they're not following Jesus. Our answer to that why answers all the other whys we'll have in this life. And we'll see it's by dissecting Judas's why question that we catch a glimpse and we sort of peek into the closet of his wickedness. It's... Um, I don't know if anybody's read Ralph Ellison's 1950s novel, um, The Invisible Man. It sort of helped me understand Judas to a greater degree this week, thinking and pondering about that very old, uh, very classic novel. See, Ellison's story is, is about a man who is not physically invisible. But he narrates that he's invisible because others just can't see him. That others are blind to his presence, to who he is. And I felt that that dilemma had a strong comparison between the life of the invisible man and the life of Judas Iscariot. See, Judas being this very palpable, invisible visibility. See, a purpose to following Christ, invisible. His presence in following Christ, visible. Within each and every episode that Judas shows up in throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we as outsiders can spot, there's the invisible man. There it is. We have the luxury of reading all the accounts. There he is. That's the invisible man. That's what he did. So we see a flake of motive and we see specks of his reason and we start to collect these moments and we can start putting together a trajectory for his wickedness. So see, see whether the start of his discipleship was innocent or not, to ask Judas why Jesus seems that it could be answered with what he would get out of Jesus. Jesus Christ to Judas, it seems, was a means to an end. Jesus to Judas was an opportunity or a chance. It was greed and it was selfish ambition. See, Jesus to Judas was just a mere turnkey and not the treasure on the other side. See, instead of his mind being renewed day by day, and instead of his heart being transformed like the other disciples, Jesus did not become more, or Judas did not become more vulnerable. His heart became hard. If you're familiar with the Bible, there's a strong resemblance between Judas Iscariot's heart and the Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. It's this starting, like this, this drift that just gradually ends up to be a full riptide. This is a huge, real danger. For any believer, this is a real danger. The book of Hebrews warns us Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We could see the gradual drift of this man's life. We see Judas no longer was just stealing. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. He became a thief. Judas was no longer telling fibs. He became a liar. He was morphing into something with, wicked with each passing chapters of the Gospels. And when Judas was exposed at the Last Supper in the upper room, he went to the religious leaders of the day who wanted Christ dead. And what did he say to them? Do you remember? 
What did he say to them? He approaches them and says, what will you give me? He comes to them at the Last Supper, being exposed. Invisible man now becomes visible. And he goes to them and says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And just with that simple moment, Judas performs one of the most heinous acts and sins recorded within all of the Bible by selling the Son of God for a slave's cost. Because when Jesus wouldn't give Judas what he wanted, he went to another. What will you give me? What will you give me? And thinking about that, that is a very dangerous and damaging way to live. To move from one object to another. To see what we can get from them, from her to her, from him to him, from church to church, from relationship to relationship. Jesus is modeling a warning for all of us to be on guard, that we don't become these these vampires of sorts. See, a little sucking and taking from everything and everyone. Having this vampiric relationships in life. Uh, I thought actually the Invisible Man, Ellison's book, has a pertinent line where one character told the Invisible Man, he told him this, you are to live life with your head in the lion's mouth. I believe that was the grandpa character telling the Invisible Man, live life with your head in the lion's mouth. Which I felt was a perfect illustration on how our own Invisible Man, how Judas did just that. See, the life of Judas is a cautionary one, and this is huge. It's a cautionary one because it reveals to everyone here that it's possible to follow Jesus without being a follower of Jesus. That's intense. It's the whole, just because you cut meat doesn't make you a butcher theory. Friends, please, please, I beg of you, let this sink in. The life of Judas is a radical smack in the face. Judas modeled again and again and again that one can be close to Christ, yes, but not near to Jesus. One can work for Christ, but never end up worshiping Jesus. See, Judas professed Jesus with his lips, but he did not possess Jesus in his heart or in his life. Judas was the invisible man living life with his head inside the lion's mouth. And so Judas, by doing this, signs his own death warrant. And he fulfills prophecy and launches into motion the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Judas, with a heart of stone, made a decision to betray Jesus. To hand over Jesus to the religious leaders, just as Jesus then hands over Judas to the hands of Satan. And it's as this fuse that has been lit, it just launches and detonates the final hours of Jesus. But what's crazy is we see Judas filled with some kind of remorse. And this is important for our study in Acts tonight. Judas returns with the 30 pieces of silver, but the chief priests and the religious leaders, they don't want anything to do with it. So he throws it in there. I'm going to read Matthew's account of this. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. 
and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with it the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called a field of blood to this day. Then, when, then what was fulfilled, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. There's this, um, there's this great old hymn where it says, Still as of old by himself is priced for 30 pieces of Judas sold himself, not Christ. Essentially, what Judas got for his betrayal money was his own grave. It's in that field that Judas takes his own life. It's here that Judas sells himself. Now, obviously, you know the story of, you know, I'm assuming if you, if you do know the story of Jesus or if you're familiar with it, you know that we can't cover it all, but that is not our goal tonight. One of our main objectives was, was to basically see aside the living daylights out of that, you know, that crime scene in the field of blood, to investigate and uncover the archetypes that are in that field. I believe we can all make a pretty sure assumption that the weight of what Judas did was just too much. That once the invisible man became visible, even to Judas, once he could see visibly his own wickedness, his broken way, his very broken way of handling things was just to deal with it, to end his life. Acts tells us of his death was very, Acts account was just very graphic, that his bowels somehow due to the swollenness exploded. Look at verse 18 in your Bibles. Now this man acquired a field with reward of his wickedness falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. Now just so we can, because we just read Matthew, this doesn't contradict Matthew's account, but speaks of it more fully. There are scholars who are much wiser than me who have been debating about this much longer than I've been alive, but I struggle to see the divergent of the death between these two accounts. Judas, after hanging himself, fell headlong, and we know the rest. And as well, the chief priest purchased the field, field with Judas's blood money. So this is the field that Judas, after being frustrated, surely took his own life. And by doing so, he makes this his gravesite. Simply, Judas died a miserable death. Judas died a miserable death. These verses are here for a few reasons. We have closure on the life and actions of Judas. We also learn, despite of hard, how hard Judas may have tried, or how hard the enemy or Satan may have tried, God cannot be stopped. God cannot be stopped. Luke, our author, put that in there for that very reason, that Jesus, the mission, salvation to the world, cannot and will not be stopped. See, Luke puts him in here, the death and the replacement of Judas, as sign posts and stakes in the ground, that what the disciples were commissioned to do, what they're about to enter into, is the deathless mission of God. I love how Luke laid out his chapter. On one hand, we have the lifeless man of Satan. And then on the other hand, the replacement of Judas shows us that we have the deathless mission of God. 
God's plans and purposes are deathless. They are indestructible. They are unbreakable. I mean, adamantium is like a toothpick in comparison to this. Get how powerful this. We have 120 men and women in this room. So something, you know, maybe a little bit smaller than this. But a vibe like this. Verse 14, and all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. For a moment, side rabbit trail, that is beautiful. Mary and the brothers of Jesus, his entire life, doubting. And here we have them in prayer. If there is somebody in your life, like there's just no way they've been doubting their entire life, allow these small verses to be encouraging to you powerful stuff. So we can only speculate because it's not written here, but there's got to be great pain in this meeting. Great agony over what Judas has done. I mean, these men walked with him for years. And then in the end, they see fully the invisible man that he was. So there's all this chatter of what do we do now? They themselves feeling betrayed. What's next? What about this gaping hole this traitor has done? And Peter, we'll learn more about Peter, but Peter stands up in the midst of this group who not too long ago denied Jesus. And he stands up in the midst of all these people and confidently and courageously points out God cannot be stopped. He's rallying the troops. God cannot be stopped. He says all of this is fulfillment. Do you guys get that is what he's saying? All of this is fulfillment. Look at verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. He's reminding them God is not shocked. God is not mocked. God is not surprised. God is not co-piloting this thing. God is and has been in control. Peter is proclaiming. Peter is exhorting any and all who may have forgotten that he is sovereign, which means he knows and he sees and he plans all. To me, thinking about this, there is no way to approach the everyday, to breathe in, to breathe out, to be confident in any plans without the assurance of who is planning it. The 120 in that room, us here today, despite all heartache and attack and loss and bad things, or even the horrible things Judas did, God is still not thwarted. Christians... Does that bring comfort to you? I sure hope it does. See, when life may seem out of control, God is in control. That his purposes and promises and plans will happen. They are deathless. Peter makes sure everyone in the room knows it. And he goes off in verse 24. It has been written in the book of Psalms, he says. And he quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And he's sewing together beautifully the Psalms of David with the situation at hand. He has a Psalm of vindication and he has a Psalm that charges a replacement of Judas. He's saying, we will carry on. Judas must be replaced. And he goes off, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and he had allotted his share in ministry. He had a lot of responsibility. Carried some weight. That needs to be replaced. There can't be any depletion as we move forward. And as well, the Old Testament shows us that there are 12 tribes and the disciples will be on 12 thrones judging these 12 tribes. 12 tribes. Matthew 19 spells it out. So they see 11. They go, we need 12. Let's fill this. 
So the disciples are doing their due diligence and making sure there are no gaps as the foundation of the church is being laid. Get this. This is epic. We have the death of Judas, but we have the birth of the church. We have the replacement of Judas, and next week we will see the replacement of Christ's earthly ministry in the Spirit. Basically, things are moving forward. God cannot be stopped. Look at verse 21. So one of them, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Basically, they're saying we need to find somebody with long-standing DNA who gets who we are and who's been around us. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until now, till the day he's been taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Someone has to be with us. We need to appoint somebody who's been with us from the beginning, who's seen the days of John the Baptist and who has seen the risen Lord because it's seeing the risen Lord, it's knowing the risen Lord that changes everything. Now, some people here, some people may struggle with this going, shouldn't have been Matthias. They should have waited for Paul. But Paul himself would say he isn't qualified. He wasn't around in the days of John the Baptist. See, now Paul is for sure an apostle, but he saw the risen Lord and he was commissioned by Christ himself. But just so we know, the 11 aren't being hasty here. We see no one in Acts saying, they screwed up. And then we see in verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So get this. They got two guys. They write their names on two different stones. They put it in a bag. They shake it up. The one that falls out, he is the chosen man. It's probably what happened. This is the last time we see this happening in Scripture because in just a few verses, who comes on the scene? Big dog spirit. The Holy Spirit falls on them and he fills them and he empowers them and he speaks to them and he guides them and he, le- he leads them. Now, I do not recommend this way for choosing anybody. God, am I supposed to be with her? I, I, this is not how we should to, are to choose spouses or elders or coworkers or employees or friends. But it was right for the moment. It was right for the moment. It's describing a moment when Jesus again chooses his, his 12. Jesus chooses Matthias. It's an action surrounded by, listen, this is good for making decisions. It's an action surrounded by prayer and scripture, community of believers, and surrendering to the will of God. And I want to wrap it up with this. Look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have made. I find this prayer fascinating. In the midst of discussing all that Judas has done, they pray, Lord, you know the hearts of all. This is true for Judas. This is true for Matthias. And this is true for you. And it is true for me. If you're here and you do not profess Jesus as Lord of your life, that Christ, is, Christ isn't your everything, that simply you just cannot believe in this stuff, maybe you are like me who once thought, if I could just be there, if I could just be there, if I could just shake hands with the people who Jesus rose from the dead, if I could just be there and I could drink the wine that Jesus transformed from simple water, that if I could just be there and eat of the multiplied bread, that if I could see Jesus and hear Jesus and touch Jesus, I would believe. 
I would believe. But I believe that notion, but I believe that notion is exploded because of the life and death of Judas Iscariot. Right? See, Judas was there. And Judas ate the bread. And Judas sat in the boat as the storm ceased. And Judas saw the blind grip Jesus as they saw for the first time. See, John chapter 12, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. I charge you, if you are here today and you're curious about Christianity or Jesus or the Bible, pay close attention to what is the makeup of our faith. See, a lesson in the life and death and the replacement of Judas shows us that reading the Bible, hanging out with Christians, hearing the preached word of God, saying a sinner's prayer, going to church your entire life, putting a not-of-this-world sticker on your car, playing Settlers of Catan, getting a Greek tattoo... Whatever it is, being baptized at a young age at a Christian camp, none of it, none of it can save you or me. None of it can save you or me. If those things were our our redeemers and our rescuers, then surely Judas would be, he'd be chief mamba jamba. I mean, he he would be the king. John Stott, British theologian and pastor, says it more poetically than I do. He says, there is a road to hell at the very gates of heaven. See, none of these very good things, the gates of heaven, will ever save any of us. And if we believe they can, John Stott would say, that is a road to hell. Now, maybe you're saying this. Cool. Cool, Casey. This is cool for everybody here, but what do I need to be saved from? Saved from what? I mean, I work and live in Santa Monica, California. Like, what, what do I need to be saved from? Arguably one of the most beautiful places in the world. I have a great career. I'm mildly good looking. Like, I have a spouse. I'm, I'm in a healthy relationship. I enjoy Taco Tuesdays and Arclight Fridays. What could I possibly need to be saved from? What could I need? Here's the thing. We need to be saved from that not being all that we have. You see, the deathless deathless mission of God is the Spirit of God charging and equipping us to bring the Savior to those who need to be saved. It's bringing the firemen to the fire. It's bringing the paramedics to the bleeding It's the overflowing well being brought to the thirsty. It's the resurrected being brought to the dying. See, the good news is that you can do nothing to save yourself. I can do nothing to save myself. No amount of earning or eagerness will ever make you or I new. See, the good news is Jesus has paid it all. That the cross where Jesus died a ghastly death for you and I, and at an empty tomb where Jesus rose in glory, proving to the whole world that he is God, and that he as God cannot be stopped. 
See, it's sincerely, sincerely believing that truth which alters the course of our entire lives. Tonight, please don't be like Judas and handle your wrongdoing, handle our wrongdoing with what the Bible would call sin in your own way. Let me just take matters in my own hand. Come to Jesus tonight. Do not be an invisible man or woman. Jesus knows your heart. He sees you. He sees you. And it's despite all that our hearts may be, because the Bible talks about our hearts, and they say it's deceitful above all things and desperately wick. Who in the world can understand it? Jesus came to remove that heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. Jesus wants us to experience the fullness of his grace. He wants that ex- us to experience his kindness that leads to repentance. And he wants us to receive life and life more abundantly.